Okay, welcome everybody. Revelation uh, chapter 18, part 2. Good news. We're going to finish Revelation 18 today. I'm going to move a little quickly through it. 19 next week. I think we're going to get through all of it in one sitting. And then when we come to 20, 21 and 22, the final three chapters of Revelation, it's going to take us a little time. And the reason for that is, is because people who study Scripture, who make a life of it, etc., almost always take chapters 1 through 19 and say, this stuff has happened. We can see how all this fell upon Jerusalem. We can see how this was describing what was going to happen. Partial preterists go all the way up to 19. They stop and they say, everything after 19, 20, 21, 22, is describing something that's coming in the future. And I think when we read it, it's going to look like that. So we got to see as we enter into it, is that true? If it is, call me a partial preterist. If it's not, call me a full or whatever. So we're just learning about this together as we go. I am along with you. And uh, so let's get underway. We'll have a prayer. We'll sing the word of God, set to music quickly, and then sit in silence for just a minute. Come back and get into chapter 18 at verse 5. <clears throat> Lord, we, uh, we thank you for life. We seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. We seek to uh, grab on, uh, attach to the vine, and let your spirit pulse through us and, and produce greater fruits of love, all because of your Son. And we pray that we will look to the cross and we will uh, remember what was done and then in gratitude pick up our cross daily and, uh, and die to our flesh, living by the Spirit. We pray that the fruit of that Spirit will be loved and will be known by others, uh, not by uh, our ability to argue or our ability to, uh, uh, to do anything, but to love, and that that love will be known uh, as we walk around in this world. We pray for those who aren't here who want to be and those who don't want to be. We pray you'll help them uh, get into a church and to seek you through the word and through the spirit be with us now as we reflect upon these words set to music in jesus name amen Yep. 
Okay, before we get into uh, our verses today, last week on March 13th, 2018, we had a pastor named uh, Nathaniel Taylor, nice guy, as a guest on our weekly show, Heart of the Matter. And in our discussion, it became really apparent uh, what the results are between when two people with different eschatologies are talking with each other. Whether you're a futurist or you're a fulfillment person, um, you arrive at different places. And the more I study, the more I see, um, personally I see, the failure of the futurist view in this world. And let me just quickly tell you why. The principles set forth in the New Testament are either for fulfilled, as I maintain, or they are not. And if they're not, as the futurist position would maintain, then Christianity today is in an inexcusable world of hurt relative to the New Testament demands uh, placed upon it, as I do not see a church on the earth who are really living up to its dictates and demands. So if Jesus has not returned and he is coming back for his church or bride, uh, where is the bride? Where is she? And who is she? And uh, in the New uh, Testament, the churches under apostolic direction were really unified because of the apostles presently in word and deed. And when a problem rose up, it was addressed by those apostles who were operating by an abundance of the Holy Spirit, even so much that this morning in our milk discussion, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians and he says, I'm not there with you presently, but my spirit is, and I can already judge the matter. This is what you should do with this person of what's going on. And there was that apostolic uh, leadership going on in the early church. Today, it seems like a free-for-all of millions of devout people and, and who aren't in harmony with the New Testament directive. So if Jesus is coming to get his church, she better be ready with the same emphasis that the apostles said, get ready, be ready, uh, she, he's coming, and if he hasn't come, how come we're not in that state of being ready? as the New Testament writers demanded. So, um, I won't go too much further into it, except that there's the claim that Jesus' church was under apostolic authority, uh, where it was kept safe and it was directed by them, and then where's the authority today? And that, the response to that is they say that the authority is in the epistles that were written by the apostles. And that's something I used to teach. But those epistles have not been available first uh, in an agreed upon content for the first 250 years. And then in an understandable language until... Latin uh, until, you know, the, the Greek manuscript was produced, and then material copies until the uh, printing press came around, and then agreed upon interpretation. So all of those things have shown us that the, the words written by the apostles have not had an authoritative uh, governing influence over the church since then. So the written word, I don't believe, has replaced the living apostles of that day and as proof of this, we can look at the state of the church now and, and what it has been since Constantine kind of made it the state religion. So working backward, we have gone about all of this, I think, in the wrong way as we have 
looked over our shoulder at what was in the New Testament narrative, and we continue to maintain that he's coming back to get his bride, uh, all the while forgetting or refusing to see that everything is done, is over, has been fulfilled, and we have entered in 1920 years ago, uh, 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 1912 years ago, a new dimension where spiritual Jerusalem reigning down from on high, it's a spiritual kingdom that goes on and forward. So I had to get that kind of off my chest. On to chapter 18. Thus far we have read and reviewed last week, verse 1, and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. We talked about that. And he cried with a mighty strong voice saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not be partakers of her sins, and ye shall receive not of her plagues. And that's where we left off. So let's read our rest of the uh, chapter today, which I think we're going to be able to get through. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. How much she has glorified herself. We're talking about the whore of Babylon here. We're talking about fallen Jerusalem here. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, the angel says. For she said in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Verse 8. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour is judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thine wood and all fine wood. I'm not sure about that one. And all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil, fine flour, wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that, that, that thy soul lusteth after are departed from thee, and all things which are dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city, she was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For <coughs> in one hour... So great riches has come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the ships in the sea and sailors, and as many as trade by the sea, stood far off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, 
What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, the great city wherein we were made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman or whatsoever craft he be shall be any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. That's a heck of a lot of description. We see some redundancy in there in what the different people see. Saying, alas, alas, and they come to a conclusion. Um, Jump back to me to verse 5 and 6. I'm going to take it in chunks and I'm going to give you general information to help support that, the idea that what this is describing is Jerusalem, the whore of Babylon, uh, coming under condemnation. We're in the last chapters, this chapter next week, of her demise. And we're going to get some clues that this is final of her demise. We have to answer how could Jerusalem fall under a demise where there's no light ever shining in her again when we have a physical Jerusalem existing today? How can we, and, and why does the writer uh, record all those specific items? Why does he talk about 27, 28 different things? No more pearls, no more cinnamon, no more this, no more that. Specifically giving them to us in this thing. What's he trying to say? What's the message? So go back to verse 5 and 6. Talking about the whore of Babylon in contradistinction to the bride of Christ, remember their enemies, he says, the angel says, For her sins have reached into heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Remember her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. Double, double, toil and trouble. Double's mentioned three times in that passage. What is that all about? It's really important to remember, I know I just said it, but just remember what's being spoken of here. The nation that said we have Caesar for our, that we have no king but Caesar, who turned from their king, the Messiah, put him to death by Roman hands. This has fallen Israel, kind of captured in the city of Jerusalem, when the Jews would float into it because of the high holidays. This is that Jerusalem kind of picturing the whole nation, right? Uh, in, in, uh, this is that Jerusalem picturing the whole nation of Israel. So a fallen Israel, having rejected the Messiah, who was full of grace and truth, were still operating by the law and uh, for their justification before God. Like Paul says, uh, for the law came through Moses, but grace and, grace and truth by Jesus Christ our Lord. They were still saying, we are going to have our justification through the law before God. This statement then, her sins have reached to heaven, it may be an allusion or a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18.20, where God says, I will go down now 
and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. There is this relationship of calling to God, calling to God, and he hears or doesn't hear. So I say this because Jerusalem in chapter 11 is called Sodom. So when we read these things, these descriptions of her, her sins have reached to heaven, and we, and we think about how she's been called Sodom, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah that can uh, picture what's happening now in Revelation? Um, then one of the provisions of the new covenant we know was God's continued promise that he will remember our sins no more. This is the promise, and I will remember your sins no more. Um, that's in Jeremiah 31, 34. In Hebrews, a New Testament book, Hebrews 8, 6, one of the benefits of the new covenant one is that one of the better promises of the new covenant is the covenant of Jesus looking to Jesus in faith and having our sins forgiven and they are remembered no more. That's the new covenant. There's no remembrance of any of that anymore because of his blood. In other words, the new covenant outshines the old in that God will remember no more the sins of those who are his by faith in his son. No longer. So, contrarily, I think we can say here then that those who related to God on the basis of the old covenant still, who are there in Jerusalem and violated it, God remembered their iniquities. He remembered all that they had done. They weren't under the new covenant. And so when he says uh, here in, uh, ver in this verse, uh, um, and God has remembered her iniquities, they have to be under some economy of God's uh, working with them where their iniquities could be remembered if they didn't do things right. That's one of the beauties of the better covenant that we have in Christ is that by faith in him, God does not remember our iniquities when we fail in our flesh. It's by faith that he has forgotten everything, right? So I think that this was Jerusalem under the old covenant and God remembered their iniquities. Finally, even here in Revelation, we have heard many petitions that God would repay um, the, the iniquities and sins and terrible things that have happened to the saints upon their heads. Remember when the saints were saying, when, oh God, when will you uh, uh, make recompense for the things that have happened to us? Oh, when will you do it? And I think we see that happening, falling on the whore with justice for the injustices that she heaped upon his bride his church. So here in verse 6, this heaping is described three times with that key word I just mentioned, double. It's not just a single deliverance of justice and judgment upon her. It's double. He's, it, we see that the angel says, reward her even as she rewarded you and double under her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. So where does that language of this double uh, come from? Jeremiah 16, 18, it says, God says, And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double. 
So we have a prophetic utterance there in application to God and, and the nation of Israel and Babylon during that time. And now we have a prophetic utterance of it applying at the end of that age, where in Jeremiah 18, 16, God says, I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double because they have defiled my land and have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. We can look at Jeremiah 17, 18, where it says, let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring them upon the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. So we have double used here, again, borrowing from the Old Testament. Almost everything, the unique things that we see in Revelation are echoing what we have seen in the Old Testament. If those of you who have been with us from the beginning know that's, that occurs. The Greek for double here is diplos, and it means twofold. So give a double, twofold, obviously, portion upon them. At verse 7, the angel continues to describe the whore and says, How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously. Just listen to those two phrases. How much she has glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she says in her heart, or said in her heart, I sit a queen, and I'm no widow, I shall see no sorrow. She was very boastful. She was like, I'm the queen, I, I have everything going for me. No one can touch us, even the Roman army can't touch us. We can go and rebel against Rome, and we can do what we want because we are God's chosen. I'm a queen, I am no widow, I will have no sorrow. And I think we're seeing that that is not the case. Even in the heart and actions of fallen Israel, we see collectively the opposite of Jesus' teachings when he walked the earth. Uh, the first line, for she has glorified herself. Okay? And just think about what the New Testament says in the epistles and in the gospels about glorifying oneself. And live deliciously. Um, Galatians 5.26, it says, Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Philippians 2.3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. That's a humble approach to have here that Paul is saying. And she, the whore of Babylon, had the opposite. She was self-glorifying. She was, give me the glory, right? And then, of course, to the sumptuous living, the deliciously, live deliciously there in verse 7, we have that great, uh, which I don't think is a parable, I think is actually a story, a real story that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man. I think that was an actuality because it's the only story in the New Testament that could be seen as a parable where Jesus uses a proper noun of somebody, Lazarus. That's who he names the poor guy. So I think Lazarus was a real, this is a real story. There was a rich man. In fact, this is what he says in Luke 16. Jesus says, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen. Do you see those two words being used here in Revelation? We see that uh, used often. And this was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. It, interestingly, in the story of, and, and then he goes on to talk about Lazarus, how he was covered in sores and the dog licked the wounds, and that's all he had. And both men died. That's all he says. Both men died. 
and the, the rich man who lived sumptuously every day went to uh, uh, the prison part of Sheol, and the Lazarus, whose wounds were licked, went to Abraham's bosom. There's no reason given. Why? It's just, although the only description he gives is that the one lived in purple and fine linen and fared deliciously every day. And so we have that same picture being given here to the whore of Babylon. She was proud. She was living deliciously. She had everything she wanted. And later we're going to see a description of those things and all the material things that, that uh, John lists here that are seen, right? But so she's proud. She sits as a queen. I am no widow. I, and mourning I will not see. In Isaiah's day, Babylon was described in a similar fashion. If you jump to Isaiah 47, 8, Isaiah says, Now hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow and know the loss of children. So from that passage in, in Isaiah 47, 8, again, Old Testament, we have the, con, the, the text for Revelation being fulfilled now, where the whore, uh, fallen Jerusalem, sits, says, I'm no widow. I'm not going to lose any children. I've lived sumptuously. Let me continue to be dressed in purple and eat uh, deliciously. I'm fine. That was the attitude of the whore. In other words, I'm independent. I'm self-sufficient. I'm unchangeable. I am Israel. No one can touch me. Why, we have Caesar as our king. We don't need this, this, this rabble-rouser Jesus, right? So interestingly enough, Lamentations, written shortly after Jerusalem fell for the first time, in 586 BC, starts off like this. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations, she who is a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. That is a really picturesque description of what was about to happen, what did happen then, uh, as evidenced by the first verse of Lamentations, looking backward and saying, look what's happened, and also looking forward to Revelation to show this is what the future of real Israel is. Understand that, that emphasis. Real, true Israel is. That's going to help us with some verses we're coming to in a second. So in the Old Testament, it seems that, and all the way up through Jesus' day, it seems that the Jews had a confidence in who they were. Jesus had to face that constantly in his walk. And he says, look it, man, I can take stones and make sons of Abraham out of that. You're, you're not anything special here, so knock it off. But they didn't really hear the message. Josephus says to them, quote, No one believed that God would permit his temple to be destroyed. And when this finally did happen, everyone within the city, men and women, young and old, were crazed with despair. Thousands cast themselves into the fire. That's... That's passionate despair. And others fell on their own swords. That is a nation that has, is really upset about the change between who they thought they were and what they became. And uh, Josephus is the one who gives us that. So again, I suggest that this chapter 18 and its descriptions in John's life have not yet happened. He's describing something that's coming right down the pike quickly, and we're in the last part of it. 
And so where our other chapters may have covered things that have happened in John's life, we're now at a place where these things are yet to occur. The final blow to, uh, to uh, Israel and in particularly to Jerusalem. So, verse 8. <coughs> Therefore, shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judged her. Of course, just like Babylon in Isaiah's day and the Babylon of John's day, um, John says she is to receive her plagues in one single day. And what would it look like? It would come by way of death, mourning, famine, and burning with fire. So again, of course, it's well documented that uh, these very things took place in Jerusalem proper and around the surrounding areas of Judea uh, in 70 AD and were finalized in one day. One day that occurred with uh, a culmination. It wasn't, yes, there was a war going on for quite a while, like a five-month real attack, but in one day it was seen as, it was in one day everything fell. Um, Death, mourning, famine, and burning with fire. Verses 9 through 10. And the kings of the earth, and remember earth is Gehe, I didn't check this, or Oikomenia, it is not cosmos there. So it's not all the kings of, you know, the kings who live in Canada. You're talking about the kings of that area, probably over the provinces that are of Rome, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. A guy named George Peter Holford, he was, wrote extensively about uh, uh, Jerusalem and what it looked like, and he used the writings of Josephus in 1805. He gave some graphic details of compiling all the information and putting it together in some narrative. He said about the burning of Jerusalem's temple in 70 AD, quote, The Romans, exasperated to the highest pitch against the Jews, seized every person whom they could find and, without the least regard to sex, age, or quality, first plundered and then slew them. The old and the young, the common people and the priests, those who surrendered and those who resisted were equally involved in this horrible and indiscriminate carnage. Meanwhile, the temple continued burning until at length, vast as it was in size, the flames completely enveloped the whole building, which from the extent of the conflagration impressed the distant spectator with an idea that the whole city was now on fire. The, tult, the tumult and disorder which ensued upon this event, it is impossible, says Josephus, for language to describe. The Roman legions made the most horrid outcries. The rebels, finding themselves exposed to the fury of both fire and sword, screamed dreadfully. When the unhappy people who were pent up between the enemy and the flames deplored their situation in the most pitiable complaints. This is writing style of the uh, 19th century. Very, very dramatic. It's kind of the way the uh, 
Mormon's Doctrine and Covenants and things that were written. And he goes on, those on the hill and those in the city seem mutually to return to groans of each other. Such were expiring through famine, were revived by this hideous scene, and seemed to acquire new spirits to deplore their misfortunes. The lamentations from the city were re-echoed from the adjacent mountains and places beyond Jordan. The flames which enveloped the temple were so violent and impetuous that the lofty hill on which it stood appeared, even from its deep foundation, as one large body of fire. The blood of the sufferers flowed in proportion to the rage of this destructive element, and the number of the slain exceeded all calculation. The ground could not be seen for the dead bodies over which the Romans trampled in pursuit of the fugitives, while the crackling noise of the devouring flames mingled with clamor of arms and groans of the dying and shrieks of despair augmented the tremendous horror of a scene to which the pages of history can furnish no parallel, end quote. That guy was just writing a, a, a recitation of what he read from the histories and annals of Tacitus and Deo Cassius and, and, uh, and uh, 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 Josephus. So, you know, kind of an amalgamation of everything they're saying. I don't even think he was a, a, a partial preterist or full preterist. And yet, when you read that, you can see this was the end of the world to them. This was the end of the oikomenia, the uh, economy of the Jews. Done. Not one stone left upon another. Fire ravaging, destroying genealogies, destroying priesthoods, destroying family lines. And, 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 and so we have a recreated Jerusalem now, even to the Wailing Wall, in my estimation. That is not part of the original temple, as Jesus' uh, prophecy wouldn't be uh, true. So I think we have a, a, a faux, uh, we have a pseudo-Jerusalem today. That's going to play into what we're going to read in a minute, too. A couple little clues as we've gone along. So, uh, verses 11 through 14. Here we go with the laundry list. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, and no man buyeth her merchandise any more. Those lines like that, that word any more, tells people who are futurists, see, I, when I was visiting Jerusalem, I bought some pearls or whatever. I bought some jewelry. I bought some merchandise. You can still buy it, so therefore this is in the future. That's how they read it. Keep reading with me. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones, precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silver and scarlet and all fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and staves and souls of men and the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee and all things which are dainty and goodly are departed from thee and thou shalt find them no more at all. Why does the uh, uh, narrative, why does this revelation go to the trouble of listening, list, listing all these things? Why? I mean, he, the, the angel, John, could have just said, and every consumable good was lost. No. Do you see the list of those things? Do you see that list show up anywhere else in our study of Scripture? When you go through and you're reading scripture and you start reading about these items that are listed, where else do you find them? We're going to answer that in a second. So, we are greeted here in these verses 11 through 14, the first of five verses 
that describe the permanency of fallen Israel, Babylon's fall, with the word no more in verse 11. They shall this no more. When we get into later verses in a minute, we're going to see more emphasis on that. Never again, no more, ever again. And again, to a futurist, couldn't be possible that that's fulfilled, so therefore it's out in the future, and we'll talk about it. The other verses, by the way, are verses 14, 21, 22, and 23, which we'll get to. This lends credence to the earlier assertion that what is primarily being seen here is the fall of what? Just a city? No. It is primarily describing the fall of the Jewish economy of the Old Testament and all the things that were involved in that economy, in that temple, and what, what was used in that temple to have offerings to appease God through the offerings and sacrifices, that is, going, that is gone, and that is what is being said. I mean, try and plan as they might. Think about this for a second. As hard as people might, for the past 1,012 uh, years, I think that number's right, for the past 1,912 years, the Jews have not been successful at recreating what was done in the, in the temple there before Jesus died and ascended and, and returned. They have not replicated that. All of the tenets of, Ju of Judaism uh, have been incomplete and the, uh, after the final destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, for 1,012 years, the nation of Israel have failed to replicate or implement even a portable tent, like is described there in, in Leviticus on just make it this big. You can put it in the back of a pickup truck and, and make the temple this uh, portable sanctuary, if you will. They couldn't even do that. How come? Um, it can't be that tough physically. It's not that tough physically. So even today, we have crazy evangelicals, who I think are the American Taliban, by the way, uh, raising money to rebuild a third temple in Jerusalem. Raising money. Like Israel can't come up with the money to build their own temple. Uh, I think strongly that God was damn serious, damn serious when he dismantled that old system in 70 AD. There was no kidding around here. When you have his chosen people who he's made promises to get wiped out by over a million by the Romans and their sacred temple get destroyed in the way it was, we are talking about his dismantling a covenantal system and to work back into that system in any way, shape, or form is anathema to God in his new covenant. And I think it's demonstrated by the power which was evidenced then to wipe it out. There are 28 items or categories mentioned here that fallen Jerusalem is said to have been engaged with, uh, bartered or sold. Some say that these things do not seem possible in describing Jerusalem because Jerusalem didn't have all, this, all these things going on, all this commerce. 
This is why there are people who believe what is being described is Rome, not Jerusalem, when it talks about the cinnamon and the this and the that and the that. Uh, we'll address that in a minute. But the thing that is interesting to me is the last item listed here that was present in the city before it fell, the souls of men, in all probability referring to the slave trade and to slaves, that they had slaves present. Now, in that day, slaves were certainly possible to be there in Jerusalem, but I doubt it's possible in the future that there would be a slave trade in Jerusalem that is going to get wiped out in the future when the second coming happens to a futurist. So think about that because it says here, and all the slave trade that you had were a part of is going to be lost too. I don't see how that has any viability today, unless somehow we become so bad we go back to slave trading in Jerusalem and they're present. I, you know, people will say anything's possible, but... So let's talk about this merchandise listed here. To doubt that verses 11 through 13 are describing Jerusalem in that day, and you might think it's describing Rome or possibly New York or L.A. or some other hub of industry... Think of Jerusalem as a mart of sorts. And let me just read to you what Bible scholar Edersheim says. He says, quote, In these streets and lanes, everything might be purchased. This is a description of Edersheim's Jerusalem pre-70 AD. The production of Palestine or imported from foreign lands, nay, the rarest articles from the remotest parts, exquisitely shaped, curiously designed, and jeweled cups, rings and other workmanship of precious metals, glass, silks, fine linen, woolen stuffs, purple, costly hangings, essences, ointments, and perfumes, as precious as gold, articles of food and drink from foreign lands. This is why the, there was the, the, the cry, oh, what has happened? What has happened? They had great commerce going on there. He goes on, in short, what India, Persia, Arabia, uh, Media, Egypt, uh, Italy, Greece, and even the far-off lands of the Gentiles yielded might be had in these bazaars. Ancient Jewish writings enable us to identify no fewer than 118 different articles of import from foreign lands covering more than every modern luxury has devised. End quote. Edersheim on ancient Israel. So if someone says that isn't describing ancient Israel, it certainly was. There's only 28 things listed here. David Chilton, preterist fame, said, quote, The wealth of Jerusalem was a direct result of the blessings promised it in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Uh, God had made her a great commercial center, but she abused the gift. While there are similarities between the list of goods here and that in Ezekiel 27, which is a prophecy against Tyre, put that in context, it is likely that these, I, these items listed in Revelation primarily reflect the temple and the commerce surrounding it. When I just read that list to you, I said, do you, those, those things sound familiar to you? They were almost all, I'm not sure about cinnamon, but I'm sure, I didn't look, but they were almost all involved in the temple worship of what was going on. If the temple is going down, therefore all of that is going to be lost. Check, check cinnamon out for me and you can call me out on that one. Uh, in an article called The Merchandise of the Temple, uh, Duncan McKenzie has a great deal to say, including first, why is John providing so much detail about Babylon's merchandise? How does it add to what he's telling us? 
It is my position that this list of items is another example, one of the more extensive in Revelation, of physical reference being given in the midst of a symbol to aid in the identification of that symbol. As I have stated earlier, Babylon was not a literal city, not Jerusalem and certainly not Rome. I have identified Babylon, he didn't say this, I have identified Babylon as fallen Israel. So it's not, it, it, Jerusalem is the gathering of Babylon. Babylon is the spirit, the spirit of the whore, not necessarily a city, he concurs with that. It was a symbol of a community of people, a symbol of God's unfaithful old covenant community. This community is being represented by images associated with the temple and the priesthood. If Babylon were a literal city, this list of items would add little to the story being told here. If, on the other hand, Babylon is a symbol of unfaithful Israel, then all of a sudden this merchandise makes much more sense. Quite simply, the merchandise listed here of Babylon is the merchandise of the temple. That, that's pretty profound if you think about it. That's what's being described. The whore's fallen. Guess what's going with it? All that is of the Old Covenant and all of that stuff. Another author, I'll be quick, by na uh, his name's Carrington. He wrote the following on the goods of Babylon, said the long list of merchandise in Revelation 18, 11 through 13 is surely a catalog of materials for building the temple and the stores for maintaining it, end quote. And then uh, Massenburgi Ford, what a first name, said, of the items which are listed in Revelation 18, gold and silver, precious stones, fine linen, purple, silk for vestments, scarlet, precious wood, bronze, iron, Deuteronomy 8.9, marble, cinnamon as ingredients of the sacred anointing oil. So there's the cinnamon I didn't know about. Spices, incense, anointments, frankincense, wine, oil, fine meal, used frequently in Leviticus for fine flour offerings. Corn, beef, sheep are all found in use in the temple. Ivory and probably pearls were found in Herod's temple, which is why they're mentioned here, not in the Old Testament. Although horses and chariots do seem to be incongruous, the Greek word for chariots is reed, a four-wheeled chariot, a fairy, excuse me, a fairly rare word which appears to come from the Latin name. The author may be insinuating that Rome ways were introduced into the sacred city meaning that they had chariots that were now involved in the temple worship, and that's why horses and chariots are involved in this description. The listing of merchandise in Revelation 18 is similar to the listing, as I said, of merchandise of Tyre in Ezekiel 27, um, and Tyre is being lamented in Ezekiel 27 for dwelling on her richness, for her riches and wealth. And you know, this is a theme that goes uh, all through that, that scripture. Why? It's not there's anything uh, intrinsically wrong with riches and wealth. God blesses you with it. You use it to his good. There have been many people, scripture, Abraham, uh, Josephus of Arimathea, people who had wealth used it properly and helped. But uh, it has that uh, capacity to bring, make you uh, puffed up and seek other gods. So in Ezekiel, speaking of Tyre, and here talking about the whore of Babylon, wealth is something that she deliciously enjoyed, right? Um, let me get through that. 
Also, the ornate decorations of Herod's temple are something to consider, and that's why we have the pearls and stuff. And you know what's really interesting to me? It makes me laugh. Prior to Jesus being born, Herod's temple was under construction. That sucker didn't get finished, completed. Yay, grand opening, cut the ribbon, till 65 AD. It stood for five years before it fell in flames. That's the humor of God. People say, does God have a sense of humor? I think he does. I'm going to let these people toil on this building forever, make it so beautiful under Herod's uh, direction, initial uh, vision, and I'm going to torch it within five years. Hence, the people couldn't believe it. They could not believe that it went down. We also see that Revelation 18.13 consists mostly of items that were used with sacrifices and offerings in the temple. That's the cinnamon, uh, incense, fragrance, oil, frankincense, all those things. I didn't know about cinnamon, but I guess that's true. Now there's another, uh, one more take on the souls of the men in the city that we might need to mention. And that is this. I said it was slaves. There wouldn't be slaves today in Jerusalem that are going to come and get wiped out. But back then there certainly would have been. Well, there's another take that commentators have that I tend to think has good merit. Um, we might see this as the leaders of the Jewish temple system who were capturing men's souls through that old archaic religion and not introducing them to the better way of Christ. And that was a way that they were becoming slaves. And in this state of Utah, we have picture of that. In fact, if you go to anywhere in the world where there's a Mormon temple, that is a form of bondage and slavery that is going on here. They put them in slavery. You got to go to the temple. You've got to do your endowments. You got to do the work for the dead. You got to dress in these clothes. You got to be worthy. You got to pay. It's a form of bondage, which is why Christians so ardently stand against Mormonism. A Mormon people are as in much bondage as the Jews were then. Love for them, but it's a bondage that is counterintuitive to what God established in his son and destroyed there in uh, uh, the city of Jerusalem. So entrapping, enslaving men's souls is another way to understand that last line of the big laundry list. The temple hierarchy had been in bed with Rome, uh, so much so that Rome was even appointing the high priest now by this time. And the Roman beast was now going to turn on the harlot and kill her. And these are the final chapters describing that. And also remember what Jesus said, uh, talking about slavery, of what the system did in people's lives. He said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I think this is Matthew 22. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor would you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. As yourselves. You, you go so far to get a, a, a convert, and then you put them in double bondage uh, of yourself. Uh, great description from Jesus. We also recall in Galatians 4, 24 through 25, where Paul makes a comparison between uh, the free woman and the bond woman. Let me repeat that, I, switch it, because when I talk to the audience, I try to always do the good things on this side, which is my left, but it's your right. Anyway, the bond woman and the free woman, the bond woman being Hagar and the free woman being Sarah. And, and we went to a great discussion about how those uh, images that Paul brings out in Galatians are also types of the whore of Babylon and the bride of Christ. Well, this gets us to this parallel of the two cities um, 
in Revelation. And just as the other woman in Galatians had children who were enslaved, the bondwoman had children who were in slavery, the free woman had children who were born into liberty, non-captivity. And so I think there's something to that in all that's being said here. All right, verses 15 through 20, quite a chunk. And it's passages like this that make even preterists wonder who is being spoken of here, Jerusalem or Rome, uh, futurists, some other city possibly. And the merchant of those things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city which we have identified several times as Jerusalem in our study of Revelation, that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and, and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the companies in the seas and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein we were made rich, all that the ships by the sea of the, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, in one hour is she made desolate. In verse 16, we see that the great city is described as clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. We saw the same very description in the previous chapter, Revelation 7, 17, 4, speaking of the great prostitute, the, the Babylon, the mother, the, the mother of prostitutes and the earth's abomination. She was dressed in these similar things. And in this chapter, we read that the description of the harlot's attire was nearly identical back in 17 to the ephod worn by the high priest back in Exodus 28. So we have a picture of the high priest righteously wearing the products, the linen and the ephod and the stones and the things. And now we see fallen Israel and the whore of Babylon uh, wearing them too. And we see uh, what is being done away with here, that old economy. So I would just, it's another reference to that. Anyway, verses 9 through 10, we read, The kings of the earth were shown standing afar off, weeping and wailing over the smoke of Babylon. In verses 15 through 16, the merchants of wares are shown doing the same thing. And now in verses 17 through 19, we read that the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea mourn in the very same manner, saying the same words, alas, alas. Um, In one hour, she has become desolate. It was such a shock. They had commerce with her. They traded their wares. They made money. They became rich, as Revelation says, from her. They were stunned at the sudden demise of something that seemed so impermeable. It was not possible for it to end. Remember, we've read quotes where the Roman army probably could not have taken Jerusalem. Their whole army, because of the way it was built, but because of infighting up there within the city walls, it fell. It wasn't because of attack. Everybody who looked at her thought she could not fall, especially her temple. And in one day falling, people are, those who engaged with her, stunned. All right. Turning to jo uh, historian Josephus, when Israel lost the uh, Jewish-Roman War in 66, uh, that went on from 66 to 73, Jerusalem was not merely taken 
uh, five times before it had been taken. Um, just listen to what Josephus says about its desolation. And thus was Jerusalem taken in the second year of the reign of Vespasian. In the eighth day of the month of Gorpius, you yell. It had been taken five times before, taken five times before, though this was the second time of its desolation. It's the difference between taking a city and destroying it, right? For Shishak, the king of Egypt, and after him Antiochus, and after him Pompey, and after him Sosius, and Herod took the city, but still preserved it. It had preservation all along. It was not destroyed. But before all these, the king of Babylon conquered it and made it desolate. That's the first desolation. 1,468 years and six months after it was built. And now we see a second time where it is made desolate. Okay, verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, ready, for God has avenged you on her. Um, an indictment that's given in Revelation 16, it's given in Revelation 17, and it's repeated again now here in 1824. But there's one difference between what it's said in Revelation 16.4 and 17.6. Now apostles are added. Now apostles are added, okay? If this judgment is yet to come, as the futurist standpoint says, what 21st century entity might be responsible for shedding the blood of both the prophets and the apostles? Who's, who could be responsible for that? But back then we know that James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred in Jerusalem in 62 AD, okay? So... Uh, by the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders. And we know that Peter and Paul are also martyred by Nero, um, uh, instigated, instigated by the Jews. So more importantly, however, and for our purposes, we have clear prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 23, 29 through 38, that the martyrdom of the saints and the prophets would be held to the account of first century Jewish audience. Because this is what he said that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, Gehei, area. Truly I say unto you, all these things will come upon this generation. Okay? No future generation. It came upon them. Now, people who say, well, Jerusalem was destroyed with judgment, right? Uh, um, if they agree to that historically then they have to agree that Jerusalem has paid for Jesus' condemnation of shedding the righteous blood of the prophets and the apostles. So why would there come another judgment upon them if God has already poured his wrath out for them killing the prophets and apostles sent to them? It does not make sense. But Jesus in Matthew 23, Luke 13, and Acts 7.52, he is quoted as or says, all the righteous blood of the prophets and apostles will fall upon this generation. And that is what we're reading about, folks. So uh, this judgment was poured out within the time frame of that generation. And uh, I have three more verses. I can cover them in a few minutes. Should I try to cover them quickly? And we'll wrap up the chapter. Okay. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, thus with violence, thus with violence. So the millstone into the sea that John was seeing was not a literal thing that we're supposed to see happening. It's thus, 
at like this shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found. Here's another one that's tough. No more at all. How do we justify that? I've given you some hints as we've talked along. No more at all. And here we have that not only imagery applied through the use of the great millstone being cast in the sea. We are told once the great city is thrown down, it shall be found no more at all. Uh, which is more evidence of the finality of the old covenant, in my estimation, not the finality of a brick-and-mortar city, which is what futurists would try to say it is. Verse 22 serves as another announcement of her finality, as it says, And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more. That means the grinding of grain shall be heard no more at all in thee. That's, re, that's a redundancy. No more at all in thee. That means no more, right? How can we say this is fulfilled? Because the great city of Jerusalem under the law with the temple filled with the people of the covenant people of God, the city of David for the house of Israel has never existed since. If you go there now, I would say it's a mongrel race there. They are not, they are not truly Israel. They've inter, they were, there was a diaspora at this time. They were taken into captivity. There was mating and, and all sorts of other things with other races. And pure Israel is gone. Pure Israel existed, uh, well, closely probably up until that time. But now the last vestiges are completely wiped out. That is how there will be no more singing. There will be no more uh, uh, trumpeters. There will be no more of any of this going on in that city because that city is done. That economy is over. It doesn't exist. What is there today is nothing like it was. The tribes are gone. It was, uh, that's not true Jerusalem. Uh, that's not in the hands of her people and priests and temple. It's a farce what's there. Uh, in my estimation. And it's no disrespect to the nation of Israel. It's no disrespect to human beings who live there. But they have to come to God through Christ like the rest of us. There is no preferential uh, nation now. That nation was absolutely destroyed, as evidenced by the physical uh, destruction upon its center city of peace. Destruction, not taking of. Uh, I have people tell me for decades, hey, Sean, you need to go to Jerusalem, man. You need to go over there. You need to go over there. It's just, I, I, you just really get what it's all about when you go over there. And I just simply say, you know, I'm part of the new Jerusalem. And I'm part of a, a city that dwells on high. And I, I'm part of that thing spiritually. I don't care what's over there. You know, Constantine's mom went around and renamed a bunch of stuff. And they've got a wailing wall. And everybody goes up to it and they touch it. And it's, it's very emotional and stuff. I don't care of going there. I get, I've been invited many times. I had someone offer to pay my way to travel with Benny Hinn. Travel with Benny Hinn to Jerusalem and, and see it. No, we don't need it. It's a spiritual, heavenly kingdom now that we are all a part of. The material being gone. Last verse, same subject. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom, this is important, and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee, for thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. All this is an illustration by the angel 
throwing that millstone into the sea and it's sinking once forevermore. So the candles that lit the menorah in the temple and the things that were going on with the lights and stuff, no more. Never again under that economy. The former system and the covenant dead and gone. So where the city of Jerusalem has risen again, the old covenant temple system will not and has not and never will rise again. We'll continue on with chapter 19 next week and then we get into the the final wrap-up. We're getting into the the great wrap-up of the book of Revelation, 20, 21, 22. And that is going to test me. I just told uh, Barbara here in our audience, I haven't read ahead. I've read through the book, but I haven't read ahead to plan anything. I don't know what Revelation 20, 21, and 22 are going to unfold. I may change from being a certain full preterist with partial, no, being a full preterist with partial preterist certainty to stepping back from full preterism to saying I'm just a partial preterist because of the content of Revelation 20, 21, and 22. That is what distinguishes between people who say it's all done or it's, or it's still being fulfilled. So I'm really intrigued. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves that we find that the Spirit moves us to understand what is being said in that because I honestly have not prepared intellectually or, or with, uh, I haven't gathered sources yet. I haven't read about it. I'm going along with you on this to see what we discover. And thus far, I have seen nothing but support for it all being fulfilled. Questions, comments, insights, song, dance. Back row. Side. Back in the side. Oh. Hi, Shlon. Uh, I was wondering in, in uh, Revelation 16, 3, when did all the fish and everything in the oceans die? Uh, we covered it. And I can't remember. <laughs> but we covered it at length. And I have to stand by my, my old thing. I am not a yeah. scholar in my memory. I just, I just know there was a really uh, reasonable explanation and you can probably go back to our archives, uh, Revelation 16, and discover what the uh, answer might be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if I remember right, I think it's talking about Sea of Galilee, and, uh, uh, but that could be wrong on that. All right. Oh, Robert. Robert. The double troubled children that are lost and have religion. Uh, you said it was, might have been 22, but you said it might have been. It's uh, 20, Matthew 23, 14, and 15. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that clarification, Robert. Anything else? All right, I don't have the prayer list. Wendy is sick, so I'm just oh. going to pray for people who are on it. Lord, we know you know who's on it, and we know you know who needs prayer. So we just lift uh, all, uh, the whole world up to you. Then those who are in particular need, and have asked for prayer. We pray that you'll remember them who we prayed for this morning. Help us to take this information, Lord, and through your Spirit, sort it out in our heads. Eschatology, understanding of it does matter because it, it helps us understand how to live the Christian faith today. And to dismiss it as a, a non-event, uh, Lord, it seems to me, and prove me uh, wrong if I am, no problem. But it seems to me that if it's dismissed, we make a lot of mistakes as a people 
in understanding what it means to be a Christian now. So we pray that your spirit will be with us, especially as we enter into these next week, it's 19, and then we enter the last three chapters, which are the fulfillment. It's the bride of, the, of uh, Christ being married and the whole marriage supper and the whole thing and the wrapping up of everything. Lord, help us to know by your spirit whether that has application to that time and that day or if we're still waiting for it now. We also pray for Marty Jr. and Butch. We pray for Sean Jarvis Green and the cancer he's battling, Taylor and drug addiction, Kathy, her eyes and her diabetes, for Liz and recovery from uh, knee surgery, David, continued healing from his cancer, Annette, uh, her cancer and back pain that comes along with it, Diana, continued healing on her knee and leg and heart and continued peace and comfort, Joan, who had a broken leg from injuries in a car accident last Thursday, so sorry to hear that, Lord. Bless Joan and help her in her recovery. Lisa and her battle with cancer. Our little friend Gracie and her battle with cancer. And, uh, you know, everybody else who's battling with things in their lives, which is all of us. Some way or another, we have a warfare going on. That's you working in and through us to bring us closer to you. Help us to turn those warfares over to the Spirit and let your Spirit guide, not through the flesh. We love you, Lord. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, Christ is the